Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today we are joined by Steve Hurley. Steve, thanks so much for being here. Good morning, Emily, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Great. So Steve is a nationally renowned defense attorney and heads the most well-known and respected criminal defense firm in Wisconsin. He has been recognized as one of the top 10 lawyers in Wisconsin for Super Lawyers Magazine and has been recognized by the best lawyers in America since 1995. He is also an adjunct professor of law at the University of Wisconsin Law School, teaching criminal law, evidence, and trial advocacy. And Steve joins us today to offer his expertise for our trial tips series. And our topic for this trial tips episode is focused on hearsay evidence. So Steve, I think it's best in this case to tell our listeners what they're going to hear from us today, since there'll be different levels of familiarity and experience with hearsay evidence. I think that it best to just share up front for our listeners what they're going to hear so that people can look forward to the pieces that they're interested in. We're going to cover a lot within hearsay. We're going to define hearsay evidence and provide some examples to elaborate on the nuances. We're going to talk about some exceptions to the rule against hearsay and the importance of reliability. We're going to talk about how stress impacts reliability, present sense impression, and the intersection of hearsay stress and competence and excited utterance. Now, Steve, here's your chance to give listeners their cue for what you want emphasized from this conversation about evidence. Before we began recording, Steve, you were kind enough to share information with me about hearsay and things you wanted to be considered and discussed. So there were three things about evidence and some other things that you expressed you wanted emphasized during this conversation. Would you please share those with our listeners up front so that you know, they stand out to our listeners before we dive into all these topics that I just spoke of? I'm glad to. What I want to emphasize is that hearsay is all about the reliability of the evidence. When, when we look at the federal rules of evidence and most state rules, they're really just about three things. They help guide us about what's relevant. They help guide us about what's reliable. And then they establish policies that sometimes interfere with the ability to put relevant and reliable evidence in front of the jury. And these are policies like privileges, for example. You have an attorney-client privilege, and within that privilege may be a communication that really helps a jury or a trial judge resolve a case, but they can't hear about it because of a policy reason. Hearsay is solely about the reliability of evidence. That's the rule against hearsay exists solely to help a judge put only reliable evidence in front of a jury. And whether something is admissible as hearsay or inadmissible as hearsay is within the discretion of the trial judge. When we talk about federal rules of evidence, we call them rules, but they're really guidelines that 
help a judge determine relevance or reliability. So there's always room for argument about whether in fact the hearsay statement is reliable or isn't reliable. And we see a lot of litigation, more and more litigation today as we have empirical studies that also inform us about whether an out-of-court statement is reliable. And when we look, for example, at the first three exceptions to the hearsay rule, we see that perhaps the basis for their existence is no longer well-founded in science. And that additionally provides room for advocacy. So those are the things I want to talk about today. Thank you for sharing all of that, Steve. Let's take a step back now. And knowing that our listeners have a range of experience, let's take the time to define hearsay and share some examples of hearsay. Sure. Hearsay is very simply a statement, any statement, that was made outside of the courtroom where the trial is occurring. But it's only an out-of-court statement that's actually being used to prove the truth of the substance of the statement. So, for example, if I say I saw Joe and Joe told me it was beautiful outside today, if I'm not trying to prove that it was beautiful outside today, then the statement's admissible. But if I am trying to prove that it was beautiful outside today, then I can't use the statement because Joe isn't there to make the statement. So the premise for hearsay is that it was a statement made outside of court, but what defines it as hearsay is really the use to which we put the statement. So whenever a lawyer sees an out-of-court statement, it should just send up a little red flag to the lawyer to say in their head, why are we using this statement? Is it to prove the substance of it? Then I have a hearsay objection. If it's for some other purpose, then I don't. Now, statements sounds like a pretty easy term to understand. It means a person's oral assertion. It means a written assertion but it can also mean nonverbal conduct when the nonverbal conduct was intended to be a communication. So something like flipping the bird at somebody, that is intended to be a communication even though it's not oral or written. And that would be hearsay if it's being used to prove the truth of its meaning. Okay. What a Fun example for a conversation using the word that is a strong communication or meant to be a strong communication. So thanks so much for walking us through definitions just to make sure that we're all starting with the same base knowledge. Now, would you please share some exceptions to the rule against hearsay and exceptions to the rule regardless of whether the declarant is available as a witness? So you shared three categories with me and I, I think this is also a good place to go ahead and talk about how stress affects perception as well so if you would talk about all those things for us now that would be great thanks we have today about 70 years of research not simply within the united states but a lot within western europe and other countries about the effect of stress on observation 
And what we know is that stress is a huge factor in one's ability to correctly perceive events. When someone's under stress, the body produces cortisol. It causes one to focus intently on that which is causing fear or stress, really to the exclusion of other things. We know too from about an equal number of years of research on human memory, that memory is an extraordinarily fragile thing. The moment we perceive an event and recall it, the memory begins to fade. And the memory too begins to be affected by a lot of other influences. When we see something that is noteworthy, but inexplicable, our mind begins to wander into, well, how did this occur? And we begin to fill in the gaps, not from memory, but from our own knowledge and our own thought process. Similarly, we know from all the research that memory is easily influenced by another party. So simply questioning somebody about an event can affect memory because of the way in which the question is worded or the tone in which the question is delivered. So when we have hearsay, we have an out-of-court statement by somebody that is not present in the courtroom, not subject to cross-examination. And it's very difficult to tell just how reliable that person's statement is. So the rules of evidence have about 27 exceptions to the rule against hearsay. And they are listed in what the drafters originally thought was their probable order of reliability. And Conceptually, we can categorize these in three groups. We have exceptions that are premised on the notion that spontaneity or contemporaneousness of the statement with the event gives us reliability. A second category is statements that are made with regularity. So what's commonly known as the business records exception to the hearsay rule falls within that category. And then the third category are statements that aren't particularly reliable at all, but we need them because without them, there wouldn't be evidence on which a judge could base a decision. And most of these are exceptions that were created for two specific situations, one involving property line disputes and the other involving will contests. It's the first category. Those exceptions that are premised on the notion that spontaneity and contemporaneousness provide reliability that I'd like to talk because those exceptions are very often exceptions that apply to people who make statements out of course while under stress. If we look at the first exception, it's called an exception for present sense impression, a statement describing or explaining an event or condition made while or immediately after the declarant perceived it. So this is an exception based on contemporaneousness of the statement with the event. The nature of the event or the condition is irrelevant. For example, you're standing at a crosswalk and you're looking at your telephone while the light is red and you can't cross. And all of a sudden you hear a crash and you look up and you see two cars that appear to have crashed together. 
At the moment you hear the crash and before you look up, you hear someone exclaim, he ran through the red light. Now you don't know who said it, but it was a statement made contemporaneously with the sound of the crash. And what this rule says is that's reliable. And the notion is it's reliable because there was no time to think about what occurred. No time to have your thoughts influence your statement. That seems to make sense, but it's really at odds with the research that we have about people who make statements under stress. And the more horrendous the event, the more stress has been suffered by the person who observes it or hears it or somehow senses it. Mm -hmm. Steve, that's an excellent example and helps us understand the impact of stress. Now, something else we talked about before this conversation is competence of a witness um, and you know anyone who's making a statement or an assertion, something that's being put forward as evidence. So would you please speak to the intersection of hearsay stress and competence? You bet. So competence is the foundation for every witness. In other words, in order to testify in court, a witness has to be competent. And what are the elements? And they're very simple. First, the witness has to have perceived an event with at least one of the witness's five senses. Second, the witness has to have recalled the event. Third, the witness has to be able to communicate the event to the trier of fact. And fourth, the witness has to promise to tell the truth. All cross-examination and direct examination is only about those four things, right? Did you really perceive the event that you're testifying about? Have you recalled it correctly? Are you communicating it correctly? And are you telling the truth? All examination of witnesses, whether direct or cross, are about those four things. When we take the example I just gave you of hearing someone say at the moment of hearing the sound, they ran the red light. You don't know who that was. Now the rules of evidence say that when we allow a hearsay statement, the credibility of the hearsay declarant, the person who said he ran the red light, is in issue and that all of the tools that we have in the rules of evidence to impeach a witness are applicable to the declarant of the hearsay statement. But when you don't know who that person was, those tools aren't there. And we can't tell whether or not that witness was competent. So I'll give you a good example from a case from New York. It's called People versus Vasquez. It's a New York appellate case from 1995. And what happened was the defendant was on trial for unlawful possession of a firearm. And police officer testified that they saw the defendant walking quickly toward a building. And according to the police officer, the position of the defendant's right hand suggested he was either holding a gun or placing one in his waistband. And the officer testified at about the same time, an unidentified woman pointed to the defendant and told the officer, he's got the gun. 
So the officers chased him into the building. They found him on the second floor in a locked apartment. According to the police officer, the defendant grabbed the butt of a semi-automatic handgun and then replaced it in his waistband. The defendant then goes into an apartment. They follow him. But here's the thing. They never found a gun. They claim to have found some empty shells on the floor, but they never found the gun. And he's on trial for possession of this weapon. So the only evidence of his possession of the weapon was the statement of an unidentified person saying, officer, he's got the gun. Now, at the time the statement was made, the officer was focused on the defendant. But there's no knowing whether the statement of the unidentified woman pertained to the defendant or to a different person who might have been chasing the defendant. Normally, the rules of evidence would allow us to impeach that person's credibility, but we don't know who she is. Here, the judge permitted the statement because it fell within the exception. And so he was convicted of possession of a weapon solely based on a statement of an unidentified woman who made the statement, presumably while under stress. And you have to look at that and say, if the rule against hearsay is about reliability, does this really cut the mustard? And this is where I say there's room for advocacy. Thank you for that example, Steve. So then, you know, as we continue to talk about credibility, reliability in witnesses, would you please also speak to excited utterance? and what place it has in all of this. And then also, if you would, speak to the then-existing mental, emotional, or physical condition of the witness. So we have another exception for an excited utterance. And what the rule says is this, that even though it's hearsay, we can admit as reliable a statement relating to a startling event or condition made while the declarant was under the stress of excitement that it caused. Now, in light of the research that I just talked to you about, this is a pretty weird exception. We have this exception mostly because it's been there for a couple hundred years, not because it's premised on any research or data. In fact, the research or data suggests to us that this is the type of exception that does not produce reliability. The notion is that a startling event or condition causes you to pay attention more than one otherwise would, right? And therefore, the statement is reliable. When the research tells us that perhaps it's just the opposite, that a startling event or condition may cause one to focus on a single fact. For example, if I'm being robbed at gunpoint, what the research tells us is my eyes are gonna be focused on the gun, not on the face of the perpetrator. And it tells us that after an event like that, people can describe the gun very well, but they can't describe the person holding it very well. The exception seems to say anything you think you recall is going to be admissible as long as you were under the stress of the excitement that it caused. Now this differs from the first 
exception I told you about, which was based on contemporaneousness of the statement with the event. This has nothing to do with the statement being made at the same time of the event. Rather, it has to do with the statement being made while someone's excited because of the event. And courts have held, usually in the context of sexual assault cases, that a witness who is upset six months after the fact because of the event they're describing, that that statement made six months later falls within this exception and is therefore reliable. Despite all the research telling us it becomes less and less reliable over time and less and less reliable as the stress takes over. So again, this is a place where there's significant room for advocacy in front of the judge because the judge's job is to make sure that reliable evidence gets in front of the jury and she can use her discretion to say, yeah, it seems to fall within that exception, but I'm not gonna let it in, or the reverse. When we look at the third exception, then existing mental, emotional, or physical condition. We create an exception for a statement of the declarant's then existing state of mind, such as motive, intent, or plan, or emotional, sensory, or physical condition, such as a mental feeling, pain, or bodily health, but not including a statement of memory or belief to prove the fact remembered or believed unless it relates to the validity or terms of the declarant's will. And let's forget about that last clause for a minute because it really relates to cases involving will contests. Emily, if I ask you, how are you? You're gonna tell me that you're fine, especially because we're recording this and it's gonna be played to the public later. <laughs> right. right? Yes. But you've probably been sitting at home for the last six months because of COVID. You're probably frustrated as all get out as a result of that. If you had children, they'd be schooling at home right now while you're trying to work, right? And maybe your husband comes down with COVID at the same time, and you're just a wreck. But if I ask you, how you doing? You're going to say, I'm just fine. Right. right? This exception says, when you say, I'm just fine, that's reliable. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we all say I'm fine when people say, how you doing? It's, it's pretty, you know, you've got to be really good friends with someone before you start sharing all the bad stuff in, in response right. to that question. But this exception says that's reliable and it's just silly. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a good example. There's a case in one of the texts on evidence that involves a fellow named Angelo. And Angelo's leaving the house, and his wife says to Angelo, where are you going? And he says, I'm gonna go meet Joe. Well, Joe is subsequently found dead. They used the hearsay statement of his wife that he said, I'm gonna meet Joe, as proof that he was the one who killed Joe that in fact, he was going to meet Joe. Now think about this for a minute. Suppose Angelo had been cheating on his wife. Do you really think that as he was leaving the house and she said, where are you going? He was gonna say, oh, I'm gonna go see my lover. No, he's gonna say, I'm gonna go see my best friend, mm -hmm. right? 
this rule presumes that when you say something like that, you're always telling the truth. And it defies human experience. So once again, if the purpose of the rule against hearsay and its exceptions are to provide reliability, there is room for advocacy within these exceptions. Great. If I may, I'd like to kind of tie it all together again. We've walked through a lot, and for our listeners, I'd like to take a moment to get in the frame of mind as a practitioner and just that these have been excellent examples that you've walked us through. So let's say if I'm a practitioner, whether on the defense or the prosecution, if I'm a practitioner and I want a witness statement to be admitted as reliable in a trial, what is your advice to me to meet expectations that this evidence is indeed admissible, that it can withstand you know, being impeached, if you will, and also to establish competency of my witness. What is your advice to me? Well, whenever you're looking at a potential hearsay statement being admitted, first thing you ask yourself is, do I know who made the statement? And if the declarant of the statement is unidentified, if it's like that person in the example I began with who exclaimed he went through the red light. If you don't know who it is, you cannot examine their competence. And so I would object to its admission. I would say objection, hearsay, and competence. And I would explain to the judge, look, I'm supposed to be able to use all the tools of impeachment with respect to the hearsay declarant. And because the person's unknown, I can't do that. And we see in the cases now that are coming down on this issue, more and more courts instructing judges that they should be more circumspect about allowing a hearsay statement into evidence where the declarant is unknown. Second thing I'd say is always remembering that hearsay is about reliability. When I apply the rules to the facts of this instance, am I really coming up with something that one can say is reliable? Now, to some extent, a judge is going to say, look, you can argue all of that to the jury, and she would be correct in saying that. But at the same time, there's a threshold on admissibility And the judge may look at the circumstances of the application of an exception to the hearsay rules in relation to the particular facts of the case. So in that Vasquez case from New York, where the only evidence of the person having a gun was an unidentified declarant, a judge may look at that and say, you know, even though technically it falls within the exception, in this case, I'm not going to apply it because it's just too dangerous where it's the sole evidence and the declarance unknown. So always analyze reliability against the particular facts of the case. Okay. And if I have a witness where I am worried about 
again, I'm either prosecution or defense. It doesn't really matter, but I've got a witness that I want to put forward. And I think that there is a vulnerability to their credibility. Let's talk about, for example, something we've discussed on this podcast before. I have a witness that has a mental disability or um, a mental health disability. What are some of the steps that I should do to establish and sort of protect the credibility of my witness in holding up against opposition in a trial? You know, historically in America, we didn't let a lot of people testify. When the nation was formed, really the only people permitted to testify were white males. We didn't let women testify. We didn't let people of color testify. We didn't let children testify. And we didn't let people with mental disabilities testify. And over the last 200 years, we've come to realize that was all ridiculous. So every witness is presumed to be competent until we show that they are not competent. The law presumes that someone with a mental disability is quite capable of perceiving an event, recalling an event, communicating the event, and promising to tell the truth. When you have a witness with a mental disability, you have to pay particular attention in preparing the witness and presenting the witness to the court to make sure that even though the presumption is they're competent, you communicate the elements of that presumption to the trier of fact. If it were me, I would be talking to the person about their disability. I'd be asking them to explain to the jury what the parameters of the disability were, how does it affect them, in order to show that it doesn't affect their ability to perceive, to recall, or to communicate, or to promise to tell the truth. If I were cross-examining, I'd be doing precisely the opposite, trying to show that it did. You know, we take our witnesses as we get them. For some, the impairment may be a mental disability. For others, it may be a physical impairment with hearing or speech or something else. We always go back to the concept of competence, whether it's to qualify the witness or whether it's to affect a jury's or a judge's perception of their credibility. Make sure that you are showing or disproving the witness's ability to perceive, recall, and communicate and tell the truth. And it really boils down to those four things very simply. Okay, thank you. One final question for you, Steve, before we wrap up. And this question does come from my experience in viewing TV and movies. So you can talk about whether it will actually be something a practitioner will face or whether it's something that's just a dramatized tactic. Let's say I'm in a trial and my opposition has put forward hearsay, just the notion they've mentioned something to plant a seed in the jury or the judge or just to impact perception. And I say, objection, the judge rules sustained, but the seed has still been planted. What can I do to address that? Or what should be my steps to clarify some things to kind of make sure that seed is placed in its proper context, if you will? Yeah, it's, you know, 
this is one of those things that you see in TV and movies that can actually happen in court. And it's not the most ethical thing for a lawyer to have done. It's not, in my mind, good practice, and I wouldn't advocate it, but it, it certainly does occur. And you can never unring a bell. And in part, I have to tell you, it depends on what was said and what the facts of the case are. But the first thing that the lawyer should do is if they object and the objection is sustained, the first thing they should do is turn to the judge and say, I would like you to instruct the jury to disregard the state. Now, young lawyers often look at that and say, well, gee, if I ask that, that, that almost rings the bell a second time. And they'd be correct, right? It's like locking it in for the jury that, about what was said. But the act of the judge admonishing the jury to not pay attention to it, it's something that one can come back to if necessary in a closing argument. When the judge says to a jury, you are instructed to disregard it, we, we can't take away their memory. But the act of the judge doing that makes them understand this was wrong and it kind of points a finger to your opponent who started it, right? And not in a good way. And if it's necessary, you can go back to the jury later and say, look, the judge told you to disregard it because it wasn't a proper question. And if it suggested to you something, that something may have occurred, you're being told to disregard it because there's no proof that that ever occurred. You can never unring the bell, but you can mute the memory of it. And it begins with asking the judge to tell the jury to disregard it. Great. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for all of your insights and your expertise. I think we've covered a lot. I'm sure there's more you could say, but we'll wrap up our conversation there. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.